It's good to be in the presence of the Lord. He's just raining down his showers of blessing. Uh, could I get a bit of light here in the front, please? Um, team, thank you so much. Um, I think this morning was perhaps one of the craziest mornings uh, in the Elliot home. Having to get all the hair done, the kids done. It was uh, like the apocalypse, but we made it. Amen. Uh, it was Shanom's birthday in the week. Happy birthday, Shanom. Where, where, where is Shanom? Happy birthday, Noms. Uh, you are aging uh, like Moses. You know, when Moses got to that age of miracles. <laughs> Happy birthday to you, Shanom. It's good to see Uncle Johnny, Auntie Aggie in the house. Amen. So good to have you. Um, as well as uh, uh, Pastor Noel and uh, Pastor Cornell. Uh, just give me a wave if you're in the house. Amen. So good to have you. Any other pastors in the house? Um, good morning to you and our guests. Welcome. And um, I'm going to do my best this morning to keep it very short. It's my Christmas tradition to aim for 29 minutes. 29 minutes. And uh, I want you to turn with me to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. When you're there, please give me an amen. First John chapter 1. If you find yourself after Luke, please come and see me for prayer after the service. You are at the wrong John. First John chapter 1, we're going to read the first four verses. Apostle John writing, saying, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled, concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father, and was manifested to us, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. It is a season of joy. Amen. Father, Lord, we thank you for such a wonderful morning when we can reflect Reflect on your birth, reflect on the time and season where you came into the earth, wrapped yourself in human flesh, and where the angels proclaimed Emmanuel, God is with us. Thank you, Lord, for your plan and your love towards us. Thank you for reminding us this morning of your eternal plan of salvation. And that there's good news and that your desire for us is that our joy might be full. We ask this morning, Lord, that you anoint our ears to hear what the Spirit of the Lord is saying to our hearts. Anoint the preacher that he may speak as an oracle. And I pray, Lord, that you help the preacher to be as concise and as direct and as clear 
as you'd like him to be and help his dear wife to keep track of the time this morning in jesus name amen amen, <laughs> amen and amen as you probably know the author of the epistle of john is john himself the son of zebedee also known as john the beloved jesus gave him and his brother a nickname and called them the sons of zebedee there is no set date where scholars can attribute to the writing of first john but many conservative scholars speculate between the period of 60 and 65 AD. John is responsible for a number of writings and works. He wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote 1st, 2nd and 3rd John, the Epistles, and he wrote the book of Revelation. In his time, when he wrote the Gospel of John, he was looking back at a, at a historical and theological account of who Jesus was and why he came. When he wrote his letters to the church, he was addressing existing and current challenges that the, faith, that the church was facing. And when God gave him the vision of the apocalypse, he was looking forward to the unfolding events and eschatological events that would impact the church and the world. The first four verses we read constitute what is called the prologue of the epistle. New Testament scholars consider the first four verses perhaps the most tangled grammatical sentence that John has ever written. In fact, it was Brown who said the first four verses constitute one long sentence in the Greek and is made more complicated by the two parenthetical phrases that seem to interrupt the structure of the sentence. Since John is the author, one cannot but hear the echo of his prologue in his gospel when you read the prologue of his epistle. In his gospel he wrote, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In his epistle, he wrote, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard and seen and, and looked upon with our own eyes and have touched with our own hands concerning the word of life, the life was manifested. And I'm sure John intended it to ring out so. He writes of a beginning in his gospels. He says, in the beginning was the word. He was referring to a beginning that predated the existence of the world and creation of the world. When he refers to the beginning in his epistle, he has a different kind of beginning in mind. He's referring to the time when the word was made manifest in the earth and Christ's ministry began in the earth. So John's gospel tells us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth. And I like the way the Message Bible puts it. He says in, in verse 14 of chapter 1 of the Gospel of John, 
the word became flesh and blood and moved into our neighborhood. And we saw his glory with our own eyes. And here in the epistle of John, John writes that the life was manifested. And we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father has now been manifested to us. There's perhaps a twofold purpose to why John takes up writing his epistle. It's both pastoral and polemic. We explained during our time and series of teaching to the year that a polemic is an apologetic, a defense for the gospel. And so initially he takes up his pen to writing and addressing the church at large because he is a pastor at heart and he has a duty to inform the flock the things that concern him. So in, so in a few verses he gives us a series of why he is writing and in chapter 1 verse 3 he says, these things I write to you that you may have fellowship with us. In verse 4 of chapter 1, he says, these things I write to you that your joy may be full. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says, these things I write to you that you may not sin. In chapter 5, verse 13, he says, these things I have written to you that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the Son of God. And that's the quality of a true pastor. Stott stated that joy, holiness, and assurance of eternal life are the very qualities that every pastor should desire to see in his flock. That we become holy. That we become a people full of joy. No depressed Christians around here. No Christians baptized in lemon juice. That we should have a full assurance of our faith in the Son of God. Are you still with me, church? Amen. His desire is that they will have fellowship with him as he fellowships with the Father. And it was Charles Spurgeon who said that when your fellowship with God is the sweetest, your desire is the strongest to have others fellowship with you. And perhaps John's letter to the church is a masterpiece in the art of edification. Secondly, his purpose for writing is that he's writing from a viewpoint of an apologist. He's defending the truth of the gospel. John is called forth by a particular and urgent situation that has come up in the church. False teachers, referred to as Gnostics, who were initially part of the professing church and they were professing believers have now conflated and compromised the gospel message with pagan ideas and now they have a message that is counterfeit and contrary to the gospel and so John gets to writing and in chapter 2 he tells us these things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you in chapter 3, verse 7, he says, Dear children, don't let anyone lead you astray. When the apostle Paul met with the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, this concern was in his heart. He met with the elders and he said to them, 
that he might not see them ever again. But his concern is that after his departure, savage wolves will come in amongst them, not sparing the flock. He said, also from among you, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. And it wasn't long until Paul's prophecy was fulfilled. False teachers, wolves crept in amongst the church to introduce another gospel. Evidently, when you read through the passage of 1 John chapters 1, you will soon notice that the teaching and heresy that he's addressing is rooted in dualism, known as docetism. There's one of the earliest heresies that the Christians had to face in the early church. What is do docetism? Docetism teaches that all matter and all flesh is evil and corrupt. Everything in creation, everything physical is inherently evil and corrupt. And as a result, the Gnostics never questioned whether Jesus was God himself. They questioned whether he actually came in the flesh. And so they taught that Jesus did not actually come in the flesh, but that Jesus appeared to be in the flesh. But John took these claims very serious. He understood that if Christ did not come in flesh and blood, there were serious implications. That means that there is no atonement for sin. That means that we are still in our sins and we are still condemned to hell. And so John begins to describe these heretics in three expressions. First, he calls them in chapter 4, verse 1, false prophets, because they are operating under a different force. Secondly, in his second epistle, in verse 7, he refers to them as deceivers, because they are leading the people astray. And thirdly, he refers to them in chapter 2 and verse 18, and chapter 4, verse 3, and in his second epistle, he refers to them as antichrists, because they undermine the nature of who Christ was. In chapter 4, verse 2 to 3, he says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit which confesses that Jesus Christ has not come in the flesh has the spirit of the Antichrist. And now that we have an understanding of the context of why John wrote, it's we now have a better insight into why he opened up his letter the way he did. He said, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked upon and, and touched with our own hands, that concerning the word of life, that which we've seen and heard, we've declared to you. And John Falvoort stated with these introductory words, the Apostle John directed his first shafts at the heresy that was concerned. John is zealous about affirming the fact that he is an eyewitness to the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
So between verses 1 and 3, he is asserting, first of all, in the first person, use, making use of plural nouns, that he was part of the number of witnesses that walked with Jesus and experienced Jesus. He says, that which we have heard and, and that which we have seen and that which we have looked upon and our hands have touched. He was part of the apostolic witness to the ministry of Christ and to the gospel in action. And there are a few things we need to understand about the apostolic witness. Firstly, they were eyewitnesses to the life of Christ. Their eyewitness account in the early church became the sacred ground, which was the authority of the church. And we see this partly in how the church grew. And we see this partly in how their writings were considered sacred. Secondly, Lindsay tells us that during the times when the apostles and disciples gave us the Gospels, there were many eyewitnesses and, and, and family members and people who had witnessed the life and ministry of Jesus. So when they presented us with the Gospels, it was easy for any one of them to stand up and correct them and say, all these four Gospels are lies. It didn't actually happen that way. The miracles didn't actually occur that way. Jesus actually didn't exist. But these people in this day and time bore witness even to the, the miracle of his resurrection. And Christ and Paul tells us in his letter in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand, by which you were also saved, that if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you be believed in vain, I delivered first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, that's Peter, and then seen by the twelve, and then after he had resurrected, he was seen by five hundred brethren at once of whom the greater part remained present with us to this day, and some have fallen asleep. And then he had afterward appeared to James and the other apostles. And then lastly, Paul says, he was seen by me as one that was born out of time. Many of his disciples and followers and the communities had witnessed the historical divine son of God. So it would be at this point, inconceivable to think that this was a lie that this was a myth that this was folktale because there were so many disciples and followers of jesus that died martyrs and it's inconceivable to think that any one of us would die for a lie and so their witness became the grounds on which the church grew because they were willing to to die for a cause. They were willing to die for the truth. And just a, a side note is that in these times and in, and in this day, we've got to develop a passion for the truth. We've got to develop a love for defending the truth of Scripture. And in these recent years, we are witnessing 
believers and Christians growing more tolerant of everybody's beliefs and everybody's truths and everybody's way of life. And we have failed simultaneously to, to grab a firm grip of the truth for ourselves. We have Christians now that believe in evolution. We have Christians now that believe you can be Hindu or Muslim and get to heaven. We believe in Christian, we, we believe in that you can be a gay Christian. We've developed all of these tolerant beliefs because we failed to develop our convictions and understanding of the word of God. And what we believe ultimately impacts on how we behave. Our indifference to the study and understanding of God's word has left us susceptible to becoming tolerant and powerless as Christians. We're happy with the two-minute devotion. We're happy with a two-minute clip on Instagram or Facebook of your favorite preacher. And we have no intention to seek out the kingdom and the word of God and we here sitting believing that God's ultimate goal for your life is to make you happy and rich and comfortable and we've missed the gospel of Jesus Christ his desire and plan for your life is to make you holy not happy and in that process of Calling out a holy people means calling us out of our comfort places and our comfort zones and calling us to a place of inconvenience, even to the place where we must accept the offense of Christ and be willing to die for what we believe in. Are you still with me, church? Oh, my wife is giving me signals here. I'm preaching, I'm starting to preach. <laughs> Amen. Okay, so... When John pens these four verses, it's one long Greek sentence. And he's addressing those who are undermining the truth of the incarnation of Christ. To undermine the truth of his incarnation is to strike at the very heart of what the gospel is. The incarnation of Christ is perhaps the most fundamental aspect of what we believe as, as Christians. The term incarnation simply means the act of being made flesh. And here are some truths quickly about the incarnation of Christ. Firstly, the incarnation of Christ was not the beginning of Christ. It marks the time when the Son of God physically entered into our world and became one of us. Secondly, the incarnation of Christ was a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And perhaps one of the most clearest prophetic words can be found in Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6. For unto us a child is born and a son is given and the government shall rest upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace and Everlasting Father. Thirdly, the incarnation of Christ is a mystery of the gospel. It's what theologians call the hypostatic union of Christ. In other words, where, uh, where two natures, Christ being fully God and fully man, 
meet in one person. Two natures are united in one man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. It is a mystery. But when Christ was incarnated into the earth, it's important to understand that it was not a subtraction. It was an addition. He added to himself sinless humanity. Nothing from his deity was stripped. He remained the Son of God and will forever be at this point the God-man. You know, I used to get offended at times when people would say we have the man upstairs. But I want you for a moment to consider that right now in the Trinity, there is a man represented. He will forever carry that nail-scarred body with all those whip marks and all those piercings on his brow and his side. He forever possesses that body and we have a man represented in the Trinity and Hebrews says we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with us in our weaknesses because he was made just as we were. And so it's important to understand the mystery around the incarnation in this sense that the Son of God, without ceasing to be God, became what he created in order to redeem us. Fourthly, it was the virgin birth that was the sovereign effectual means by which the Son of God would assume sinless human nature. And it was Grudem who stated, when we speak about the humanity of Christ and the incarnation of Christ, it's appropriate to begin with the consideration of the virgin birth. Because the virgin birth became the instrument by which the Holy Spirit would restrict the transmission of legal sin and death to Christ. The virgin birth speaks to three things. Firstly, it shows us that ultimately salvation comes from the Lord. It was impossible for Mary to conceive without a daddy, without a physical father. But that supernatural act of the Holy Spirit overshadowing and coming upon her and conceiving what the angel called that holy child was a miracle that no man could mimic. And so the virgin birth spoke to the fact that it is only God who could save us. Secondly, the virgin birth also made it possible in uniting the deity and the humanity of Christ as one person. And lastly, the virgin birth made it possible for Christ's true humanity to be without inherited sin. From the conception and the incarnation of Christ, it's important that we understand that Jesus took on a completely new mode of existence as a man. There are two, two important reasons why it's necessary for us this morning to understand why he became a man. Firstly, he became a man for the sake of representative obedience. In other words, Adam served 
us and serve creation in the sense that he was man's representative in the Garden of Eden. He was the federal head of creation. So when he disobeyed and when he felt guilty and when he sinned, we all sinned and that guilt was imputed to us and we inherited the sinful nature of Adam. So where Adam failed, where Adam disobeyed, we failed and we disobeyed. But Christ came as the last Adam. And, Ad, and the last Adam did what the first Adam failed to do. And so the last Adam was obedient even to the point of the cross. The last Adam obeyed and was righteous and was sinless. And so when, when the last Adam died and was obedient to the Father, he represented a new creation. He represented all of us who will now place our faith in him. And the life he lived as a righteous man becomes imputed to us as righteousness. And so he becomes our Adam when we place our trust in him. Secondly, see, the, the, the reason why it was necessary for Christ to become a man was it was necessary for him to be a substitute for us. He was our substitutionary atonement and sacrifice. If Jesus had not become a man, he could not have died for our sins and taken our place. And he could not have paid the penalty that was due to us. And Hebrews chapter 2 tells us, surely it is not with angels that he is concerned, but with the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, he made, he had made, he was made to be like his brethren in every respect. So that he might become merciful and a faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So his substitutionary death became the propitiation for all of us. And that term propitiation means that he appeased the anger and wrath of God. And by doing so, he removed away the sins and guilt of the world. So Jesus came down from heaven to be born into this world as a man to do what we could not do for ourselves, to do what only God can do. Only God could show us who God really is. Only God could pay the price for sin. Only God could provide us with the power against sin. Only God could conquer death. And the grave. Only God could reconcile us to the Father. Only God could do it. And no man alive. So when Christ entered the world, his incarnation illustrated two things this morning I want to highlight and then I'm going to close. Firstly, it, in, it, it expressed and communicated the humility of Christ. That the king of heaven, the king of all the earth, was willing to leave his throne, the portals of glory, to wrap himself in human flesh and descend through a birth canal of a virgin called Mary and walk the dirty trails of Galilee. That the son of God, God himself, the second person of the Trinity, would appear on earth as a helpless human baby 
needing to be fed, needing to be changed, taught to speak like any other child, the more you think about it, the more, the more staggering it becomes. That is the ultimate expression of humility. That he would stoop down low to make us great. Philippians chapter 2 says that though Christ was in the very image of God, he did not consider robbery to be equal with God, but he humbled himself. And put on the form of sinful man and he came in the likeness of a servant and humbled himself even to the point of the cross. He said, take upon me, my yoke is easy, for I am meek and lowly at heart. That's why Paul says, let this mind be in you that was in Christ. Secondly, when Christ entered the world, his incarnation was the ultimate depiction and portrayal of love. It was for love he came. It was for love that he would die. If you have any doubt this morning, about who loves you and about whether God loves you, there is no reason to doubt that this morning. There are four reasons or four ways we determine the depth of love, generally speaking. Firstly, we know love and the depth of love by what it is, what it costs the individual who shows you love. That's how we determine the depth of love. By, by the price that someone is willing to pay. If he sacrifices his life for you, you can be assured that he really loves you. Talking to you, single lady. So we will see with the love of Christ that there will never be a greater measure of love then what it costed him, costed him his life. Secondly, we know someone's love towards us, in a sense, by how little we deserved. If, you are, if, if Christ was treated well all his life, and God was treated well, it was expected that he would love us, right? But the Bible says that while we were yet sinners, enemies of God, Christ loved us. We were undeserving. And yet he demonstrated his love towards us. Third way love is expressed and how you measure the depth of love is by the greatness of the benefits we receive in being loved. The Bible says... Not only did he die for our sins, but he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. After he died for you and saved you, he fills you with the Holy Spirit that becomes a deposit and guarantee of eternal life and the promises to come. He makes you a co-heir with Christ and an heir of God. He gives you a plan and a purpose and he protects you. He set you free from eternal torment and he placed you into his immediate presence. That is love. And lastly, we know the depth of someone's love for us by the freedom in which they choose to love us. Jesus said in John 10, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. 
He chose to love us freely and willingly. And that's why he came. And that's why he came into the earth and that's why he died to demonstrate to you his love. I like that old hymn of Charles Wesley where he said, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, held incarnate deity, pleased with us in flesh to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. He came from heaven to earth to seek you out. He always desired to be amongst his people. He always desired to save his people. And he did it through his son, Jesus Christ. Can we stand this morning? Amen. Amen.